Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 270 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a very nice conversation with one of our great contemporary composers, librettists, Richard Wargo. We talk about his process, how he got into music, opera. We talk about uh, early influences and the importance and value of music and art in a community, in the country, in the human experience. It's a great conversation. This go-around with Richard Wargo. We have an EW essay titled Listen. We have another finely crafted and beautifully read original essay written for us by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. It's titled Screamers and Smurls. We have a poem called Fable. And as is always the case, of course, we will be sharing with you the wonderful music of several great artists. Let's get to it. Episode 270 of Troubadours and Raconteurs. I got a dirty, dirty feeling. Dirty feeling's going on. You know I Listen, and Atlas shrugged as another conservative human policy proves itself to be inhumane, especially for the urbane, and those who are completely content with a catchy turn of phrase let themselves be amazed by the otherwise empty hyperbole while fellow citizens are treated like denizens, and no matter the proof compiled to communicate clear the injustice, nothing seems to rile these drones, 
to admit their mistakes and missteps. The humility, wisdom, and courage of kindness are not there. Reticence is the way of the smug and impatient. Anger at being proven wrong while melodrama becomes instead the strong arm of those controlling the narrative to further control the throngs, defining the daily mores of our society. How has this gotten so wrong? Yet, as I write this lament, the shine of our star sun basks me with rays of pure energy as several churches in my neighborhood ring their bells, for it is another noontime celebration. Despite the depressing focus I share and fear I wear, so steadfast and righteous, I guess I might be on to something. The birds whistle and chirp beautiful spring melodies for any to hear who listen.
Hello, Richard Wargo. Is that you? This is me. Oh, so nice to have you on the program. E.W. Conundrum here from Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Oh, it's great to be. Great to be part of it. Thank you for asking me. Oh, we're going to have a good time uh, talking with you today. Let me first share with our listeners a bit of your background, if you don't mind. No, not at all. Richard Wargo is a composer, libertist, has been allotted by the Philadelphia Inquirer as, quote, a fresh new voice in American opera, and by Opera News as, quote, a born opera composer, a native of Scranton, Pennsylvania, and a graduate of the Eastman School of Music. He is a two-time recipient of the Bellin Arts Scholarship. He has received grants from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the PA Council on the Arts, and a fellowship from the Theater Communications Group to serve as composer-in-residence at the Skylight Opera Theater in Milwaukee, where his opera, Ballymore, based on Brian Friel's play, Lovers, was premiered in 1999 and recorded for PBS. Recent performances of Ballymore include productions by Wexford Festival Opera in Ireland and by Chelsea Opera in New York City. Mr. Wargo's opera, A Chekhov Trilogy, was premiered by Chautauqua Opera in 1993 and since then has received numerous performances, including productions of the trilogy's third segment, The Music Shop, by the Juilliard School and by Opera National du Rhin in Colmar, France. A workshop performance of his current project, Sharon's Grave, was presented jointly by the Siegel Music Colony and the Sembrick Opera Music in the, muse in the summer of 2015. Mr. Wargo is a member of the ASCAP. During the summer months, he serves as artistic director of the Sembrick Opera Museum in Bolton Landing on Lake George, New York. Thank you so much, Richard Wargo. It's nice to have you on. And let's get right in. I want to ask you, sure. sir, I mean, you're one of the most accomplished opera composers contemporary today in the United States of America, as far as I understand it. And uh, I want to know how you became interested in music. How did it all start? Well, I, I think, and, and you know, growing up in this area, it's all around us here in, in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, uh, probably the uh, most fortunate thing for, for our family is that uh, my aunt, my Aunt Anne, my father's sister, was a, a musician. She played piano. She played organ, and she sang in the local opera group. And she kind of encouraged my parents to bring a $50 Beckwith piano into the house. And it was that that kind of was the doorway for all of us uh, to to have access to music. Otherwise, I may have been a fiction writer or something. Uh, but it was that piano. You know, they, you hear a lot of times people say, oh, it's good to have a piano in the house. Well, in our case, it really... It, it really paved the way for, for all of us. My, my sister, she didn't continue in music, but, but she enjoyed music and sang and continues to do that down in Philadelphia. My, my older brother, Jack, is a really pretty well-known rhythm and blues guitarist, and my younger brother, Ed, is a really fine classical flutist. So all of us, kind of, because of that $50 back with it, really, you know, it really paved our future in some ways. Great, inve great investment, for sure. 
And so yeah, it was interesting too that you know, like um, uh, my my grandmother would, you know, we're working class in Southside, but you know, she would always bring these records from the Goodwill, and there'd always be some treasures in there, and uh, and it was just passing that music around. And then in the teen years, I mean, we had, um, I mean, it's it. I think at the time you don't fully appreciate it, but you know, Beverly Sills came through town, and and Domingo and the Budapest Philharmonic through the community concerts. And uh, one thing that was really uh, fortunate for a lot of the young people in the mid-70s was after the Agnes Flood, uh, there was some funding uh, to establish a youth orchestra with the Philharmonic. And I was a part of that from day one and continued until I went to the Eastman School of Music. And after I graduated Eastman, I came back and I worked on the staff and uh, they commissioned two pieces from me. So... Uh, again, there there were so many opportunities here in the, in in Northeast PA when I was growing up, and still today. And uh, I was really fortunate to have access to all of them. Yeah, you know, I've always noticed that too. Uh, as you as you mentioned, the two of us are raised in the same community, uh, and yeah. uh, it it is steeped in the arts. It has been, uh, and you take it for granted until you go outside the area and you see that. It's not this way everywhere. I mean, of course, in a cosmopolitan, metropolitan area like New York City, sure. But, I mean, most towns are not like New York City, of course, nor are, nor is Scranton. But compared to many, many, many towns and small cities in this country, we're, we have a high concentration of cultural activity going on. Oh, most definitely. Uh, now, when when did it dawn on you, and why do you think it did, that, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to be a composer? Well, I think it just was a, a gradual process. I mean, the whole idea of telling stories, I mean, as far as I can remember, you know, like all of us, you know, writing stories and relating things like that. And, and I think the idea that music has the potential to heighten uh, a particular character or story. And, and so uh, realizing that, I would add music to the stories or I would go out of my way to have opportunities to to explore this area. For instance, when I was a at sophomore at Prep, um, I volunteered to write a score for the production of Antigone, and uh, and I would do that throughout my high school and college years. I'd volunteer my services. So by the time you know I was like my early twenties, I had an opportunity, and I figured this was not only was I drawn to do it, but I, I was thinking uh, it, it was a way to express. Uh, the themes of the plays in music and something that I wanted to carry further with opera, but sort of to train for that, I, I did scores for the second story theater production of, of Mice and Men, for the University of Scranton's production of Oedipus, uh, for a production of Streetcar, no, actually, uh, Night of the Iguana. So all of these plays and this great literature, I had an opportunity to explore as a kid, you know, just trying to find how, how does music fit with this and and how to tell a story through music. So I think to get back to your question, the whole notion of of telling stories, uh, of expressing the, the emotions of a character through music was something that appealed to me, uh, you know, through my teen years and something that I'm continuing uh, to this day as an, an opera composer. Well, yeah, and, and that's just it, an opera composer, which, you know... Um for first of all, going back to your teen years, 
uh, you, you, a lot of guys would just then play rock and roll music, or maybe get into into uh, well, most would go out, would go rock and roll. Maybe some go into jazz yeah. or something. But you, you went a different path. The scores. Oh, I, I, I was so square. <laughs> <laughs> and my my brother, you know, he, my older brother Jack, you know, I think he's oh, you know, because he he did that path and he was very successful with that and and loved that path. But for me, for some reason. It was the the classical music and the, the the theater music that I heard that 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 uh, had most uh, that moved me most. Now, uh, when you get into to opera, um, you your characters. You now you get to create characters. You get to, you get to create stories, uh, and the characters come to life through words as well as the music. You're composing all of that, right? The uh, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people ask, you know, I, 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 in a sense, I wish that there was a librettist I could work with. But I mean, if you if you were to read like some of the letters of Puccini and Verdi, and they were taskmasters with their librettists, and they, uh, in a way that artistically you really can't be today with the poet. It, it, it's really it's it's a whole different work environment than it was back then. But essentially, what a composer needs is to be able to control the pacing of a piece. And so if you can imagine, I mean, I've had really fine, I, I, I've met, you know, fine poets that have words that stand on their own that they don't particularly need music. So the idea of the words for an opera, uh, as a composer, if I write the words, and, and I'm not too great with words, but I have control over the pace, over the rhythm of a scene, and I can make things move along in an easier way than rather than going to a librettist and saying, "No, you have to cut these four lines, and and I need this, that, and the other." And to this day, there are really fine writers for the theater who work that way. I'm not saying that it it doesn't exist, but it's really hard to find that partnership where you have a trusting relationship with another writer where you could say, "Yeah, I know those are your four best lines, but they need to go because." scene needs to move along here. So that's that's the kind of uh, dynamic that if I had a librettist, we would work that way. The fact that I'm my own librettist, I work that way kind of privately on my own. But it's the whole, at the end of the day, it's the, the whole notion of making the piece work. And I, I think this is a lot of uh, growing up with musicals around here as well. I mean, I'm uh, as much interested in musical theater as opera. Uh, it, it, it really is very interesting to see how the musical theater composers of our day have worked. Uh, I, I saw you at a production of Sunday in the Park with George right. at Marywood, and, and of course that was written with all of these, uh, you know, back and forth between words and music and staging and writing, and it, it's just kind of like you have to get your your hands dirty and get in there and make it, you know, make it work, make it make it uh, live on the stage. Well, and, and the editing part, you know, uh, you and I have a mutual friend who uh, is our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis. He, you know, he's a huge uh, proponent of editing, and, you know, doing it right, but you have to edit, you know, otherwise things yeah. get too verbose, too wordy, too unwieldy, and things right. and, and your ideas don't communicate well. Sure. That's, no, that's it's so important. Yeah. yeah. And uh, for those of us who do not know, uh, a librettist, what exactly is the... Uh, can you give us a little insight as to what a librettist is? 
Well, I mean, of course, with any opera or even in a musical, you have the words and the music. So a librettist for opera would be like the lyricist for the entire opera as it goes along. And um, and the important thing is is that if you, if you think to sing something, that again, that's heightened speech, it takes longer than to speak it. So um, on average, the real gift of a good librettist is to really distill the drama um, really down to the most essential words and actions. And actions is really important, too, because sometimes uh, something that you might think of doing in a, in a novel or, or a play would be fine, but if you could find a way to express it without words and, and dramatize it with music or with just a few words of music, that's really the mark of a really fine librettist. And, uh, uh, and, th- and that's really the skill of really distilling the essence of a drama uh, down to its, its, its very essential parts and then letting the music and words together illuminate it in a very theatrical, dynamic way on the stage. Well explained. Thank you, Richard Wargo, here on the program. He's a composer and librettist and an all-around great guy. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's hit you with another question. Sir, uh, share share with us a little bit your process when composing a piece. Well, that's that's really interesting. You know, I I found that as many hours as I've spent in in libraries and going through bookstores looking for ideas, sometimes the ideas just come to you. So the first idea, you know, the whole the whole idea of inspiration, in my case, in, in particular, writing for the theater is often seeing something. Uh, an example. I was 17 when I saw a production of Brian Phillips' play Winners at Scranton Central. And uh, it just stayed with me for years and years until finally I, I went to Brian Friel in Ireland and I got his permission to turn it into an opera. Uh, another case was I went to the Scranton Public Theater and I saw part of their play, The, the Good Doctor by Neil Simon. And, you know, even though everybody said, oh, Neil Simon won't answer your letters, don't write to him. I just felt drawn to try and and get permission, you know, for that one bit. But aside from permissions and, and all of those technical aspects that go into you know, the, the, the writing, the, the actual composing process is you, you get an idea, and then, uh, let's say it's an opera, it's a theater piece, and you, you find that the musical moments, the high points that you want to concentrate on, and then you build around those uh, in in case of an opera or a musical, it's a song or, or an aria, an aria being a classical song. Uh, and, and often, you I mean, this is the way I work anyway, often you find those key moments, and, and sometimes you even start with them. You start, you just dive right in, you start in the middle of a piece, and then you, you, you try to find the melodic essence of that particular theme or whatever that is. And in the case with me, like I'll work on, there might be a phrase, in the, the actual play that, that will lend itself to a melodic theme. Just, you know, a little, a little theme. And then from that, you build the words and you build the scene around it. And sometimes there are just those little, little motives that, you know, little musical ideas that surround the aria that you discover and you can take and you can build the scene around it. And, and it's, it's really a whole process of discovery. It's sort of maybe putting a puzzle together in a sense. Uh, and then always having a, your eye on the pacing and the mood and, 
and, and keeping its, you know, vital and and uh, uh, all of a, all of a piece. You know, that whole editing process is making it work together. It, it's really, in a sense, you know, it, it's hard to even describe the process. And uh, but it goes on for a while like this. You you work on the music, the uh, the words, and then somewhere along the way you have an opportunity to hear some of it. And this is so essential. And I've been very fortunate to have. Uh, there are opera workshops and such that give you opportunities to hear a portion of a piece like this. And then from that, you continue to build on it and build on it. And then somewhere along the line, somebody comes and says, oh, we'd like to do your opera and you know, they, with orchestra, and which is a real gift because that's a rare opportunity. And then, uh, or even not then, even if you don't get that offer, you ultimately you orchestrate it. You, you take the themes that, let's say if you're looking at if you're familiar with like the piano vocal score, you have the, the melody line on the top. In the bottom, you have the musical ideas that accompany that in the piano. Essentially, what that is, that those two staves that have the music, that's really the orchestra. So what you have to do then is take that and, and decide, or if you haven't already decided what these instruments are, and fill it out to these, you know, expand it to, uh, to its orchestration. And that orchestration could be a string quartet, it could be a full symphony orchestra, but in any case, then the next process is orchestrating, and then putting it all together over, and this is why, you know, this is why operas take years to write, uh, or, or sometimes not just years to write, but but it might, you, uh, you might have a piece for voice and piano, and it's done, but they have the opportunity and to hear it with the full orchestra. Sometimes it's a, it's a long process, so you have to be, you have to be patient. That was a wonderful explanation. You anticipated about four questions I was going to ask you, and you oh, answered them. I'm sorry to rush ahead. No, no, perfect, perfectly done. Yeah. That leads me to another one, though. Um, right. Does the way you imagine it would sound when you're when you're putting it together, when you hear it in your head, so to speak, uh, come close to how it actually does sound when a symphony orchestra is interpreting it? Well, you know, that's probably the most exciting part of a composer's process. I mean, it really is. And it's all too rare, at least, you know, in my case, writing these operas that often they're done with piano and they take a long time to write. But it, it's it's so exciting. Like, you, it, even I'm thinking back to the times I've had pieces done by the Philharmonic. Here's like a 60-piece a orchestra on stage. And it, it's, uh, it's uh, well, I've always thought like or orchestrating, which I love doing, but it's akin maybe to painting in the dark or in very dim light, and you sort of know how it's supposed to look, and, and it is. But but when you have that orchestra on stage and the conductor with the baton, then it's like the lights are turned on, and, and, and it's not just you there, it's the whole orchestra and whoever else is around, so it's a really public unveiling. And you're enormously excited that first time you hear it. And, and usually it's sort of like you imagine, but maybe a little bit... Uh, heightened because you just you imagine it but you can never really fully imagine what the sound is going to be and there are always these one or two little areas where where you know you let the strings stop and it's oh why, why did i cut off that chord there and then you go back and you fix those things but it's really one of the most exciting uh parts of the composition process is just 
hearing it for the first time with the orchestra and and in the case of an opera with the singers and the orchestra boy that's really you know and those are the the fun you know those are probably the highlight of being a composer then when you start you know the the audience comes in and then you're like a wreck and then you don't really fully enjoy it you have to hand it over to the public and to everyone else and i'm not saying that's a bad thing but it's fraught and filled with anxiety and uh, you know, I mean, I get nervous. I, I'm, if I have a run of an opera or something, and I stand in the back, and if people are like, uh, you know, restless in their seats, I'm thinking, oh, well, this is not, something's not working here. Or if anybody coughs, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I take it personally. So it's those moments when you're still working on the piece and when it's, uh, you know, unveiled before you and your colleague, the orchestra and the singers, that are really the, the joy of being an opera composer and the other still is i'm not i'm not discounting that but i'm just saying a lot of other elements come into play when suddenly it becomes public and you're you're kind of like uh you're out there for everybody to oh yeah you're you're in many ways i mean you are you're burying yourself it's very you're very it's a very vulnerable position to be in for sure um now what uh what would you say richard uh are the aspects of your human experience that most reveal themselves in your work? Hmm. Well, I think just getting back to the idea of giving voice to particular characters and all, I think when you look at what, I mean, ultimately, the pieces that stay with me for all these years, I see something and and I, I'm drawn to, to want to express it in music, so that, I guess that would, would, would reveal, I, I think artists in general have to when you see the world and you want to give voice, let's say, um, oh, here's an example. I, I was in Ireland and, and um, I I was I saw a play by John B. Keane, and, and and the lead character was the most despicable person you could imagine, but just you know, full of wish, but but just rancorous and, and and nasty. But at one point in the play, he suddenly revealed his whole soul on stage and. It was a moment theatrically on the stage in a play. Again, no music here. I'm thinking, well, this needs to be sung. This is something that 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 you know I, I really would love to. And I was totally drawn to, and you know, ultimately I got permission to adapt this play, and this is what I'm working on now. But I, I think it's just a sense of of uh, you know uh, a, a compassion for for people and wanting to ex- express them and give voice to these different characters. Um, another thing that occurred to me too I mean getting back to the play that I mentioned I saw at Scranton Central when I was 17 and and I didn't really realize this at the time but I think what really drew me to that was that it's a play told in two different times um, there, there are young lovers I mean, the, the, the plot of the, of the play there are young lovers on a hillside and they're there for one day and I think they have the whole world before them but the audience discovers uh, that it's their last day on Earth, that they're, they're doomed to die in a boating accident. And the way the audience discovers this is that there's another separate plane. There are two characters that are sort of overseeing narrators, and they talk about the temperature of the day, and they talk about um, things that, that these young people are unaware of. And basically it's sort of like the, the here and now of, of our everyday lives, and then this vast eternity that these other characters represent. And I think 
and, and part of the point of the play is is that I think Brian Friedel was trying to, to get us to wake up and look, you know, to stay, uh, to realize the bigger picture. And I think that whole idea of the bigger picture is something that a lot of artists strive for. So separately from, from that particular opera, this the power in music, I think, uh, to transcend the daily life, the daily uh, uh, details that we think about every day, and cause us to maybe stop for a moment and and see the larger picture. I mean, I, mean, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think it's something that that um, you know that artists strive for and want to at least try to express that that you know the wonder of of everything around us, separate from you know all of our daily. Uh, uh, chores and, and tasks. You have to stop and to, and I think that's the power of classical music in general is to to give us that moment to to look beyond ourselves and our our daily cares and such. Wonderfully explained. Yeah, that makes total sense to me, of course. And uh, that is the beauty and the power of art for me as well. You really summed that up wonderfully. Thank you. Uh, so you you, you know, are I, go ahead. I'm sorry. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Oh, well, no, no, it just, it just, that whole notion, it, it really, it brought to mind uh, a recent performance I heard here locally. Um, the Arcadia Chorale uh, produced the uh, St. Matthew Passion recently. They did it in Wilkesboro St. Stephen's. And here's this massive piece. It's a cathedral of a work. And it, it, it was four hours in length, and it had two choruses, two orchestras, soloists, and it was really interesting to, um, I mean, aside from being just a, you know, a, a magnificent performance, to just there, in the midst of this packed church, St. Stephen's the Wilkesboro, and see everyone so intently together and concentrating on this one thing. There was not a blue screen anywhere. And it really made me aware of it's rare to have that communal experience of all these musicians and the audience alike just so intent on one thing for four hours. It was sort of, afterwards I realized, wow, that's, it's inspiration. that's the first in quite a while. You know? Yeah, yeah, I love those kinds of experiences as well. Um, yeah. Richard, we only have a minute or two left. I want to ask you um, what we could be looking forward to uh, coming from from you soon, you know, or even in the long term. What are you hoping to to get out there in the way of new compositions, new pieces? Yeah, well, I'm still working on uh, my my opera Sharon's Grave, and I've had the opportunity through the Seagull Colony up on Lake George to um, to work on that, and they're interested in going further with that. So that would be the the long-range big project, and ultimately to go through that whole process we talked about earlier, you know, having workshops and orchestrating it and having a premiere somewhere down the road. And then um, as artistic director of the Marcella Sandberg Opera Museum, I meet so many really fine musicians. Uh, I run a summer music series, and um, as a matter of fact, you had one of our musicians, Alberto Villalobos, on your program. Yes, he was fantastic, and, fantastic. Yeah, and... And, and you know, there's so many great people I want to work with them, so I'm thinking of maybe trying to make some smaller pieces for, for these folks that I meet and uh, perhaps have them perform either on Lake George, where I work in the summer, or maybe even locally here. So, And then the other the other task is try to get some of my pieces that are in need of, of, uh, of recopying things and everything. I'm not at all technically savvy, so these days everything needs to be in certain 
computer programs and all, so I need to catch up with some of that, too. So that's that's basically it. One long-range opera, some smaller chamber pieces, and then trying to, like, trying to uh, step into the 21st century in terms of the materials and, and the technology that I've kind of uh, been, uh, you know, remiss with. And if people want to keep track of when some of these uh, new projects will be available for public consumption, how would they do that? Well, see, this is where I'm remiss in terms of, uh, <laughs> the, the, I don't have Facebook and such, but you, but you can, um, I would actually invite people to check out the website for the Sembrook Opera Museum, and because you can always email me through there, or, or you know, there's certainly, uh, I'll, I'll include news of anything like that on that website, and that's www.thesembrick.org, that's S-E-M-B-R-I-C-H, and that's that's uh, where I spend my summers. And and if anybody from Northeast PA or, uh, is heading up to Lake George, just you know Google Opera Museum, and you'll find me up there. And come come and visit because it's a beautiful beautiful spot to be. As is, um, but as beautiful as that is up there on Lake George, and that's where I'm hosting all of these musicians, and I'm on duty as an impresario and an artistic director. I always love when the fall comes and I can come back to downtown Scranton where I have a wonderful studio and spend my fall, winter, and spring here in Scranton. And that's where you are right now as we speak in your studio in downtown Scranton. I am. I yes. am. I'm looking out the window. I see the courthouse and, uh, you know, it's a beautiful day. The hills all around. This is where, you know, sometimes people inquire, oh, well, why do you live in Scranton? And I just say to them, why not? What a beautiful spot we're so privileged to have. And, you know, the quality of life here, I found I've lived in lots of cities and and the quality of life here, I think we we don't fully appreciate. I mean, uh, it's just so so excellent, and that's why I, I just always enjoy coming back here, spending well, as much time as I can here. I, I surely am happy that you do. It's nice to cross paths in town, and it's it's really a wonderful treat to. Uh, Talk with you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Richard Wargo, one of our premier composers, operatic in particular, in the country. Thank you so much, Richard. We'll see you out and about, and I look forward to some new uh, work very soon. Thank, thank you so much. Appreciate your inviting me on. Oh, it was a pleasure. Talk with you soon. Ciao. Yeah. Bye-bye.
and smurls. Our area has had its share of supernatural sightings and occurrences. We're no strangers to the paranormal. We have a group that searches for spirits and certifies haunted houses. A while back I heard about the image of the Virgin Mary appearing on a basketball backboard in a burrow next to our depressed former coal town. It wasn't exactly the Song of Bernadette, and Mary apparently never spoke, and warned the pickup team and curious neighbors to pray the rosary or advocate for world peace. The Blessed Virgin must have had an appearance scheduled elsewhere and moved on, leaving the local teens to their game and their devout elders to ponder the mysteries of the faith. Or take the case of the Suskin Screamer, Beneath the bridge on a road near a town several miles from ours, most famous for its annual tomato festival, and as the turf of a long-dead mafioso, there lives, or lived, if he has gone to his beastly reward, a creature whose screams pierce the night air. Debate rages over the nature of the screamer. Do the unearthly screams emanate from the ghost of a woman spurned by our lover, who hung herself beneath the bridge? Or were the sounds those of a hungry lion who escaped from a circus? Or is it some kind of creature, half man, half beast, a sort of coal country centaur, our yeti, or landlocked Loch Ness monster? There are, of course, tales of hearing the beast, or catching glimpses or half-glimpses as he scurries back into the woods, the near misses, and almost encounters the Sasquatch hunters. Why is the beast screaming? Is he the last of his kind? Once he and his fellows romped through the woods, and now, after years of displacement, first by settlers, then miners, then suburbanites, he is the only one left, and makes occasional forays like a bear getting in a backyard garbage can. Only there were other bears in the woods. The screamer is alone, and his is a cry of loneliness. The poor Suskin screamer pines for a pal, or a Mrs. Screamer, to share his daily pleasures and sorrows. 
Not too far from the screamer's lair occurred the most notorious of our supernatural events. Famous enough to become a TV movie. If that's not fame, what is? On a quiet street in a small town. It's always on a quiet street, just like the serial killer next door was always a quiet guy. The Smurl family found themselves besieged by a demon, if not the devil himself. It was our version of the Amityville horror, the story of a Long Island home whose possession spurred news stories and a hit movie with James Brolin and Margot Kidder, who played Lois Lane in The Superman with Christopher Reeve. Rod Steiger played the on-call exorcist, but what I remember decades later are the flies which inflicted the home in swarms summoned by the demon to torture the family. The flies were enough to turn me off from seeing the sequel. The family in our version of Amityville complained of attacks on the family dog, strange sounds and odors, shaking mattresses, and various assaults. Except for the canine detail, many of these incidents were the stuff of standard demonic hauntings. The devil must follow a rule book. The story was a mixture of classic haunted house lore and lingering pop culture interest in demonic possession brought about by the success of the book and movie The Exorcist. There were many news stories about the family's troubles. There were the true believers, and there were the skeptics. What better way to get to the bottom of this theological horror show than with the actor who played The Exorcist in The Exorcist, our town's local hero, Jason Miller. Miller earned an Oscar nomination for his portrayal of Father Damien Karras, the doomed, doubting Jesuit who grapples with the devil himself and is hurled through a window and down a long flight of stairs to his death. Surely Jason could determine if the house was truly possessed. He was intimately acquainted with the devil. On his excursion to the house, Jason bought a childhood friend, Bob Curran, who was a reporter. Bob met Jason at a high school basketball game. They were on opposing teams and remained lifelong friends. Jason had a gift for friendship as well as acting and writing. Bob had a long career culminating in a Pulitzer Prize nomination for a story on abuses at a local mental hospital. His trip to the Smurls resulted in another coup, a best-selling book, The Haunting, which was made into the TV movie. Jeffrey DeMunn, one of those great character actors you know by sight but not name, played Mr. Smurl. The Smurls moved out of the house and into local history. The demon moved on as well, and the new owners never experienced paranormal activity. Their dog was safe. Jason suffered a heart attack and died in a downtown bar. And years later, Bob succumbed to Alzheimer's, an even scarier possession than what the Smurls endured. Bob's last story was a reminiscence of Jason for the Irish-American. And the same could be said of him as he wrote of his friend. Demons aside, he had a good run. 
fable. It is those who are complacent that glisten in the community at large marketplace, steal your face as the plastic swiped recalibrates your economic value and viability. We glisten as does a turkey just baked for depraved consumption, bending the bow of an opulent table. Who drafted this American dream fable?
episode 270 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, composer, librettist, extraordinaire, Richard Wargo. Thank you so much, sir, for sharing your insights and your passion with us on the program. I'd like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, for sharing another wonderful original essay. I also like to thank these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Elvis Presley, The Band, Jeffrey Picon and Alicia Bernecki, Thelonious Monk, Neil Young, Terence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis Toop. Until next week, why don't you enjoy this one? Thanks so much for listening.